This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in, and also the brilliant publicists and publishers managers and agents who send us all these guests and books, ideas and film documentaries. we got a couple interviews coming up with documentarians uh, that were just fantastic. Uh, today's author and also the book are really quite extraordinary. And as we get into it, you'll see why. The book itself was just something out of nowhere. I had one, I'd never heard of the uh, central character, but what a life. And the book is called Wanderlust. An eccentric explorer in an epic journey, a lost age. It's alive. It's a great book. Uh, welcome to the show for the first time, the author who put this together, Reed Mittenbuehler. Thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. We were talking about writing right before we came on. How did you end up as a writer? You know, when I was in college, I had this vague idea I wanted to be a writer, but I also knew that I needed life experience. I had read an interview with a whole bunch of filmmakers, actually, that I that I respected. And one of them had said, you know, go out and, and do something. You have to have something to write about. So that really stuck in my head. And so I, I that's how I ended up in the military. I did ROTC. I was just looking for an adventure, looking for travel. Um, this is before 9-11, just before it. And so I ended up in the Air Force. And you know, that was, it was good for me. I, I, you know, the military wasn't always for me, um, but I respect and value what it did for me. I, I did four years and then, and then got out. And then I ended up as a reporter on Capitol Hill following military issues. And then it kind of took off from there. I later ended up writing my first book, which is about bourbon, which I was into the way that some people are into wine or, you know, it's kind of a foodie thing, but I realized that it was this product that symbolize the United States. Um, you know, it really had a huge influence on the direction of the country as it evolved from its very start up until now. And the history of the nation itself is also reflected in this in this product. So I wrote one of those kind of, you know, micro history books about this product and then the other books after that. What was it like being in the military and just being told what to do and have such a tremendous hierarchy all, all around you and above you? I always felt like I would have been probably shot at dawn within a few weeks just because wouldn't really be designed for it. You know, there was a major that I worked with in my squadron who early on pointed out something to me. And she just said, you know, the weird thing about the military is everyone thinks that it's rigid and hierarchical, which it is, but it's also full of you know, she is the term misfits. And there's a lot of people who are eccentric, who are interesting, who are creative. And the military, and this is less talked about, has a way, I think, of having people who are very different find commonalities and they band together. But it also helps nurture their differences in a way and makes people, you know, be, it gives them confidence. And so I found a lot of contradictions about military life that way that I, that's one of the things i appreciate about it um you know it's not a monolith and it gives you skills that any many different types of people can use you know discipline in your daily life and how to approach problems and let like the most important lesson for me was action cures fear and so if i'm having anxiety about something it's just you know 
work at it, do something. So, you know, it wasn't as oppressive as I think a lot of people think. And, and in many ways, for me, it could be actually quite nurturing. You'd have older officers and mentors who reach down to help you out when you're having a problem. So that's how I found it. I love that. That's such a misconception because it when you watch movies like Officer and a Gentleman or some of these trying to take the hill things, it just looks like you're perpetually in boot camp getting kicked around and, you know, spit polish those shoes. But a lot of people really take to it and the camaraderie and the brotherhood. And I have friends who were in for a long time and they stay connected to the people in their groups and their officers or their buddies very closely. There's quite the bonding experience. Yeah, there absolutely is. And that's certainly part of it. You know, the officer and a gentleman sort of part of it. But that's also the part that they're picking out for the movie. You know, that's the 5% of what that life is like. Then there's the other 95%. And it's like that for most careers that are often depicted in movies, I think. You worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, any take? If I said, what do you feel like the current state of our politics are? Uh, we're taping on a Tuesday and Donald Trump might be arrested today after 50 years of criming. Uh, but ironically, a, a la Al Capone, it might be over text issues and things like that, break campaign law. It wasn't as crazy when you covered it. It's gotten to be sort of Jerry Springer meets reality TV now. It really has. I was covering it 2004, 2005, and it was feeling like it was getting crazier then. But I look back and that age just felt so much more civilized in a lot of ways, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. And then you look at it now and it's just so sad. I, you know, we could probably do many podcast episodes about this, but I feel like social media has really um, polarized people. Sorry about that. I have a toddler who just came to the door and is being dragged away now by his mother. Sorry. <laughs> dragged away by his caretakers. Don't worry about it. You know, it's funny you mentioned social media. And we grew up, both of us before it really hit, thank God, you have a two and a half year old. Would you keep the phone and the devices from him until his brain develops more? Is it too soon to even think about it? Have you and your wife talked about it? It's so dangerous to me, this stuff, especially for kids and especially for young girls. Yes, we talk about that a lot. And you know, we don't put him on social media or, you know, no pictures of him, anything like that, because it's, you know, that's a choice that he'll have to make. And, you know, I agree. I, I feel lucky that I got to grow up in the age before social media, your brain develops in a way you have constant. So I did for a while, several years ago, get a little addicted to it. I never posted a lot, but I was on it a lot, kind of doom scrolling, especially sites like Twitter. And while I was writing Wanderlust, actually, that was a, a big takeaway for me from writing the book because, you know, I'm writing about this analog age where they didn't have social media. And it really emphasized for me just how more present people were and that there was a benefit from that. And, you know, when we look at the past, there's a lot of aspects of the past that we wouldn't want to go back to, that we wouldn't want to, you know, have today. Then there are other aspects of it that I think are better and we need to admit that. And I feel fortunate that I, grew up in that time when I could have more focus. I realized that when I kicked social media, it was like kicking caffeine or a drug or something. I, I almost feel like we need to use the language of addiction when we talk about social media use. I really worked hard and I got off social media. I'm, I'm not on it at all today. And I noticed that my focus came back. I started reading books and novels that I picked up while I was on social media. 
and that I couldn't really get into, that I wasn't absorbing. I felt distracted. And then once I kicked it, all of a sudden, it was like those worlds opened back up to me. I could see the words. I could. I, I got into novels and books the way I had before social media, which was just, I could get lost in them. And it really, that proved a lot to me about social media. God, you may be the John the Baptist or the prophet here because I have been struggling with the doom scrolling around the environment and climate. And we've had all the top climate scientists on the show several times. And I feel it's kind of my duty or at least my little lane here to put all this information out here. The IPC report, uh, IPCC came out yesterday and you know, we're basically are doomed if you believe in science and physics and things like that, which I do. And rather than deal with it, it seems like we're doing the Thelma and Louise ending where they just hit the gas and go over the cliff. Like, no, we're not. I don't see how my deep, deep dive into it and texting with other scientists and other people, I'm getting so much information and I've been able to keep my head above water, but I know it weighs on me. And I'm looking for a demarcation point. I'm about to go to Europe in a few weeks. And I thought I was going to just turn all that off for the spring and summer. And I know it'll be there when I get back. It'll still be there as I move through the world. Do you think about stuff like that? I do all the time. Um, and, you know, I read the news in the morning, often when I'm still in bed, because I reach over and I, I pick up a phone and I get, you know, my email newsletters from all the newspapers and magazines. And I realize that it's not a great way to start the day because you get especially during covid you get very anxious just right off the bat and i still do it it's something i need to get better at and writing this book had me think about it a lot too because freakin was talking about climate change as early as the 1930s which really struck me no one was calling it climate change back then but he was pointing out to newspaper first because he had spent so much time living in the high Arctic in Northern Greenland, where you notice the differences very, very fast in very subtle ways. He was living with the Inuit for almost 20 years. And they noticed, I mean, they would notice it down to the degree of which like, you know, a dog's breath in the cold isn't quite as thick as it was 20 years ago. And so he starts sounding on, but back then it was interesting to see because nobody really knew and they were still figuring it out. And so you'd see a lot of optimistic talk about it too. Like, oh, well, maybe this will open up the far North for economic opportunity. But then, you know, they had the downside, but it's also changing the way animals migrate and that's causing famines. And Franken was interesting because he approached it like a scientist, you know, he'd worked done a lot of science and on expeditions that he was on, but he really focused on the human impact. He focused on how it affected the Inuit, which was a community that really formed him. It adopted him into his culture. He lived the way they did for many years. And he noticed this human impact and how it was affecting lives. And that's how he sounded the alarm starting in the thirties. And that really got me thinking about those things a lot because he was such a prophet in a way. And it didn't seem like as big of a deal then. And now and he was kind of the canary in the coal mine in, in a way. And now we're seeing the effects of those changes. You know, I'm in LA and it's been raining, you know, atmospheric rivers and all these things. And you're, it just seems much more volatile. And then it gets you wondering, well, he was speaking so many decades before our current place. What's it going to be like in 50 or 60 years, which in the grand scheme of things, isn't that far away. Um, it's going to be, could be, 
much more catastrophic. So try to manage those thoughts. Well, it's definitely going to be more catastrophic. And I would think, because I don't have any children, I think of it differently. And I'm sure when you had your child, you had a major paradigm shift about the future and a livable world, as anybody with any kind of awareness would. What is this being's world going to look like in 30, 40, or even 10 years? The American West is running out of water. And you guys are having a ton of water. You are at extreme drought all over the state. California looks like it's going to be okay. But the groundwater is really, really low. I talked to some water experts out there. And then also the whole West and the Colorado is on life support. And that's like, you know, 50 million people get water from that. Yeah, absolutely. And we think about that a lot. Is it, should we be living in LA? Should we move? You know, questions like that are always popping, especially when you go to turn on your faucet and you can tell the water pressure is much lower because the city's having to ration and those sorts of things. This constant daily reminders every day are starting to creep into our lives. You know, as opposed to the past where it was just the occasional newspaper article, you know, talking about things in a more abstract way. Now it's really starting to hit home in our daily reality. How did you find this incredible explorer guy? I know you went to a club and then there was a picture of him on the mantle or the wall and you thought what's that who's that guy is that how it all came to be because i'd never even heard of this guy but holy shit what a story what a life yeah it was crazy how i discovered him so a friend of mine had recently become a member of the explorers club in new york on the upper east side and he calls me up one day and says you've got to come see this place it's in this old mansion Teddy Roosevelt was a member, Thor Heyerdahl, a lot of famous explorers, and it kind of has that vibe, this throwback vibe. When you walk in, there's Persian rugs, overstuffed leather club chairs, old paintings on the wall, maps, a lot of stuffed animals, like a polar bear is on the second floor. And we go up to a room that at the time was called the Trophy Room, and it looks like something on the set of a Wes Anderson movie or, you know, out of a Rudyard Kipling novel or something, just... It feels like it's out of the 1920s or 30s, right after the great age of exploration. And we were sitting there catching up over a couple of whiskeys. It was after hours, so it felt like we were doing something a little illicit, like he had let me into the building. And while we're talking and catching up, I look over the fireplace and there's this giant painting of this guy. And it's a really curious painting. He's got this wild burly beard. He's got this pirate-like peg leg. He's wearing a suit. He's got kind of a funny expression on his face. And I think what have you done to get your painting over the fireplace in a place like the explorers club like i think i feel like i've got a sixth sense for pretty good stories so there must be a pretty good story here I walk up to the painting and his name was on a little plaque underneath it peter freiken and I, I had no idea who he was so i look him up and the story just explodes it's, it's as if his life was written by mark twain or something like that and I start digging into all these stories and I, I, I see the direction of going. And there's a lot of little rabbit holes with this guy that you can go down and get lost in. And I knew pretty quickly there's a book here. You know, he had written a lot of memoirs, published and unpublished. He had been a famous novelist. He'd done a lot of writing himself, but there was very little that other people had written about him. And it's a great feeling as a writer to all, you know, have that alarm go off in your head, you know, ding, 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 like here it is. Here's a, here's a book topic. And it, it could be 10 books. I wrote one of them, but it could be 10, this guy's life. Yeah, there was a Forrest Gump quality to him. He just kept showing up. But the early years, 
where he's up in the Arctic and he's so connected to the Inuit and he even marries a beautiful woman. Will you talk about that? Um, how he ended up because he's from Denmark. He's a Danish explorer. And then he goes up into the Arctic. And I just found that that just fascinating. Yeah. So Freiken starts off, he's actually in medical school and in Copenhagen and decides that that's not the life for him. And so he drops out of medical school. He starts hanging out with the theater kids. <laughs> and they're putting on a play about the explorer Ludwig Milius Erikson. And they're kind of snarky about it, you know, college kids being snarky. And Freakin had just seen Milius Erikson return from a trip and he was on the lecture circuit. And Freakin thought, you know, I think there's something more about this guy. His expedition, the Danish literary expedition, they had gone to the far north of Greenland, Etah which is about as far north as any humans on earth live. It's this very mysterious place. Like the people who live up there have been relatively cut off from the rest of the world. So they're still living this very ancient form of life. And, you know, Frigan just starts to talk to him. Milius Erickson invites him on his next expedition to Greenland, this time to Eastern Greenland, Northeastern Greenland. And despite how hard it was, and despite, you know, all the dangers and how many times they almost died, he absolutely falls in love with the place. There's a term that people go to the Arctic a lot use for it's called pagophiles. Uh, you mean you're addicted to the ice. And, you know, he goes up there and then he returns with the explorer, Nude Rasmussen, who by this point has, has become very close friends with, to live among the Inuit in Thule. And they named it Thule. It was called Kamenak before that. And he lives according to their lifestyle he was adopted into their culture um, and it really forged him he was you know in his 20s when he did this and it really helped turn him into who he was he loved their culture he loved society he also loved danish culture so you know so he, there's a lot of contradictions about this man he loved these very different ways of life um, and would move between these two you know picking and choosing what he liked best and disregarding what he didn't like the arctic to him in a lot of ways was kind of this snowy bohemia um, and he really embraced that lifestyle he really was right there on the edge with the environment and the people and everything like that and then he got his foot injured and it had to be amputated right yes this was during the fifth Thule expedition which was over in northern canada so the Thule expeditions break in rasmussen and several other scientists and then about half the group was also Inuit. They would travel to visit all these different Inuit groups across Greenland, Northern Canada, Alaska, Siberia. And they wanted to record their ways of life because they knew that the outside world was encroaching. Um, you could already start to see a lot of changes coming into the culture. You know, for instance, they were listening to country music, country type music that whalers had brought up 50, 60 years before. You could see these influences and you could see the culture starting to meld. And Rasmussen and Freiken wanted to record that. They were anthropologists just to have it down on paper because the, the, the Inuit, it was a verbal, they would pass out information verbally, not with written records. So they wanted to get it written down. And while Freiken's on the fifth Thule expedition, he was caught in a storm under, you know, he flips his dog sled over. He gets snowed into place. So it's basically like a snow coffin. It's this icy tomb. And he escapes. But in the process of escaping, his foot got frostbite. And then a few years later, it ended up having to be amputated. And what was interesting to me about this, though, is that 
at the time it was amputated, Fricken fell into this deep depression. You know, this is an existential crisis for us. For this person who wanders so much and has such an adventurous life, losing your foot, it's, it's a threat to that. And he was depressed, but he learns from his doctors the power of positive thinking. The doctors introduced him to a group of other amputees who, you know, tried to not let their you know, the loss of whatever limb they had lost really ruined their life. So break and embrace that lifestyle. And in a lot of ways, the second half of his life was full of just as many adventures, if not more adventures than the first half. He ends up in Golden Age Hollywood. He helps make one. At the time, it was the biggest, most expensive film ever made. Then he ends up in the Danish resistance in World War II, becomes a UN reporter. He travels through Siberia. All these just weird things. He ends up on the game show, the $64,000 question, the most watched show in America, and he wins the game show, becomes rich and extra famous. So he really had an extraordinary life after his injury, largely because, you know, the way he adopted a positive attitude and didn't let that injury disable him. Well, you, you just talked about some unbelievable stuff. How did he end up in Hollywood? Tell the, tell the audience. They, I read the book. They don't know. But I just thought, this guy goes from the Arctic, the Amazon, and then he ends up writing. He's part of a movie in Hollywood. He also met Herbert Hoover in there. I don't. We don't have to dwell on that, the president. But how did he end up in Hollywood? So while he's recovering from the amputation, he had started writing a little bit before that. He'd had this, you know, almost 20 years in the Arctic, living this extraordinary life. And he decides, I'm finally going to write that novel. So he does. He writes this novel. And in the novel, he uses his experiences from the Arctic to flavor it. And he writes it from the perspective of an Inuit hunter. And the novel takes off, and it's a bestseller. And movie studios are interested. And there was a movie studio in Berlin that was interested. This is Weimar, Germany. So as Hitler's coming to power. Um, so these scenes in the, in the book are a little bit like Babylon, Berlin. Uh, his the, the director was interested in producing it had really started the careers of a lot of greats, including Fritz Lang. So Freakin's excited because he was a storyteller. He was a showman, you know, as I said before, he'd gotten into with the theater kids when he was in college. And that studio ended up not making it. But then MGM, which was just starting its rise as America's prestige studio, gets interested and they option it and they want to make it. So Freakin travels to Hollywood in the early 30s. And the director in charge is W.S. Van Dyke who was the James Cameron of his day. He had directed you know, Tarzan, and he later did the Thin Man movies with William Powell and Myrna Loy. And Franken helped write the script. He was in the movie. He played the villainous sea captain, which is funny because in the novel, he's critical of a lot of aspects of colonialism. But in the movie, he plays the character, the villainous sea captain, who's supposed to represent <laughs> that colonialism. He did a good job at it. It's a little funny to watch him because for being such a big, burly guy, you know, he's six and a half feet tall. He's got this wild beard. He also he had a very soft voice. So when you see him playing the role, it's a little jarring to see someone who looks like that sound, sound a very different way than what you'd expect. So the movie was called Eskimo. And one of the really interesting things about it is that the producers, which included Irving Thalberg, the iconic Irving Thalberg, who was actually the inspiration for the tycoon in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon. They want they had a lot of big ambitions for this movie. 
Um, they wanted to preserve Franken's message, you know, his examination of colonialism, but they wanted to cast Inuit people in roles calling for them. They wanted them to speak Inupiat, which was a, a, a dialect, an Inuit language spoken in Alaska. Uh, they wanted to film it on location in Alaska. So you can see where the expense comes from. And you know, they did this and a lot, there were a lot of problems with the production and you know, such an ambitious production. The movie itself ultimately broke even, but it premiered all over the world. It got freaking traveling all over the world, helping to promote it. Um, and that kind of helped start a Hollywood career that didn't go quite as well as Franken had originally hoped, but he becomes an interesting lens for examining Hollywood at that time. You know, he's bopping, he's hanging around with people like, you know, Gene Harlow, who's probably the biggest star of the day. He's friends with Dimitri Tiomkin, the composer who, you know, he did a lot of scores for Hitchcock movies, John Ford movies, you know, famous multi-academy award-winning composer. And he's just tooting around golden age Hollywood and he becomes the lens for viewing this really interesting place at a really interesting time when the storytelling is changing now we tell stories it's becoming more mass produced more industrialized in a way and Hollywood's exporting this to the rest of the world and Franken's a part of that just like he was a part of you know changes in world politics as a as a as an explorer you know so you see colonialism through him and then you see other political changes in the world happening as Hitler comes to rise in Germany or before he goes back to, to be in the resistance. Talk about that too. I thought I found that part of the book in, incredible that he goes back in this part of the Danish resistance and, you know, working against the Nazis. I mean, he obviously had tremendous courage. Yeah. Franken hated the Nazis and the Nazis had a file on him because he would, he talked pretty openly, you know, pretty vocally against the Nazis as early as the early thirties. Um, called Hitler a maggot, uh, which didn't endear him to the Nazis. And there was an incident, actually, when he was in Berlin for the premiere of Eskimo. So this was in 1934. Maybe it was 1935. He's at the premiere, and Lenny Reifenstahl showed up. And Lenny Reifenstahl was Hitler's chief propagandist. You know, she did Triumph of the Will and all the, these films. And she's there, and she wants her picture taken with Freiken, and he reluctantly agrees but then this nazi wants to get into the picture with him and freaking refuses because he's wearing that uniform he's like i don't want to be in a picture with anyone wearing that uniform and he causes a commotion later that night he goes to a gala dinner which is being thrown in his honor and he goes there with his wife his second wife magdalene his first wife unfortunately died and his daughter pippaluk who is you know has inuit heritage part inuit so you can imagine what the nazis think of her and he shows up and he sees all these <clears throat> Nazis at the dinner and he turns on his heel and he leaves and he was asked to leave the country. And he later then ended up, so he had a small island in Denmark called Anahoya. And there was an opera, it was a farm there which provided income for him and it's where he wrote. And he starts sheltering refugees from Germany there, Jews, political dissidents, whoever. And a lot of the money he made from writing books and from the farm, he's, funneling into helping these refugees. Um, not a lot of great records kept about it because they're trying to keep the name secret. You don't want lists of, you know, people that you're you're helping flee a, a dangerous country like Germany at the time. 
but did a lot of did a lot of work there. And then one of the greatest ironies of all is this guy does this unbelievable stuff all over the world, but he's never more famous than when he wins the sixty four thousand dollar question, a TV show. But at the time, it was like the ratings were or the number of people to watch it were like a Super Bowl because there wasn't a lot of choices. And he becomes this insanely famous person for the most inane reason ever. Talk about that period of his life. Yeah, I think this is really funny because he was pretty well known in his time. When he first became an explorer as a young person, explorers were like celebrities or super. So everyone was fascinated by, you know, who's going to be the first person to reach the North Pole? Who's going to be the first person to reach the South Pole? Who's going to be the first person to reach the top of this mountain? You know, whatever. And so these stories dominated newspapers. Explorers were very famous. And explorers would get very lucrative publishing deals and things like that. They go on the lecture circuit. So he was pretty well known. But then after World War One, you know, people are just less interested in exploration. You've just had this war, which has killed millions of, of, of people. So it made exploring seem a little more frivolous. And, you know, their 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 fame kind of kind of fades. Less glory. And, you know, Franken was well known for all these expeditions he had been on, many of which had a lot of scientific achievements behind them. Um, the Denmark expedition, there were a lot of discoveries related to meteorology that later helped aviation you know, and that sort of thing. But he ends up on this game show right at the end of his life. And it's the 1950s. He's living in America at this point. And he is at a fundraising dinner for presidential candidate Adley Stevenson, who was running against Eisenhower. And at that dinner, it was in Chicago, there was a producer from this game show, The $64,000 Question. And at the time, it's the biggest show in America. It had just bumped I Love Lucy out of the number one slot. And I can't emphasize this enough, you know, especially for modern day audiences who, you know, our, our, our pop culture is much more fragmented. You know, everyone kind of goes down the rabbit hole of whatever they're interested in. It's hard to remember, you know, we can remember how back then there might there were only, you know, three big networks. Everyone's attention was focused on just a few channels. So you'd have these mega hits in terms of television shows and movies. The $64,000 question, when it was on TV, President Eisenhower actually instructed his staff, don't bother me while this is on. Cities would report pretty significant drops in crime while the show is on. Restaurants would often, you know, take the night off while this show is playing. That's how big it was. And I was looking at the numbers. It was, it easily matched today, the Super Bowl, as far as the proportion of the population watching it. And so Franken goes on this show. He had just finished, he was finishing up a book um, about the seven seas and about maritime history and biology. And those were the questions they asked him. And people who won the $64,000 question would become major celebrities. When they walked down the street, people would stop them, ask them for their autographs. The second winner was actually uh, um, Dr. Joyce Brothers, <laughs> who was really into boxing, oddly enough. And so all of her questions were about boxing. And after she won, she later got to call you know, some famous boxing matches that were on CBS. So Freud goes on the, on the show and he wins. And when I was doing my research, I was going through old newspaper database. There were thousands, literally thousands of articles about this. And whenever he goes to the airport, he's hounded by people. And to me, it was this really fascinating commentary on celebrity 
for a man who had done so much before, you know, been part of the resistance, been part of all these expeditions that were very notable, had made the biggest movie at the time and had all this stuff, the thing he really becomes known for right at the time of his death is going on to a game show sponsored by Revlon, a cosmetics company. And there's something very American about it too, because he's living in America. And one of the things I did with the book is, you know, biography wasn't my primary goal. I really saw Freakin as a lens for examining the 20th century, all these forces that shape the century, political, economic, cultural, whatever. It all collapsed down to the scale of this guy's life. And so it becomes a great way for looking at all those different, all those different things. And you see him in America, you know, that century is often called the American century, usually by Americans, but <laughs> it's the American century. He's in America and he had always been seeking fame. I mean, he was a fame seeker. He wanted to be famous. He liked the attention and he finally gets it, but he gets it in this really unique way that shows how a lot of things in human history are changing at the time. And it's ironic and it's funny and a little surprising. Do you ever wonder if we're living a simulation? Just looking at this guy's crazy life made me wonder that. <laughs> it's like, if you had written this book, if you wrote his story as fiction, people would probably push it back to you and be like, I don't know, it's a bit much. It's a bit on the nose or over the top. I mean, one thing I loved about him, he always seemed to be on the right side of the issues, or at least the same side I would be on. What an arrogant statement. But just seemed like pro-humanity, pro-environment, pro-Native people. Um, uh, kind. So he looked like this monster, but he was very soft. Did it expand you to do so much research and dive so deeply into such an expanded life? Yeah, it did. He was a very decent person and that's admirable. But one of the things I learned from it though, is that when you're looking at his life, there are things about him that a lot of different groups today would want to latch onto. You can see just about everyone across today's political spectrum, especially in America, wanting to adopt him for some reason. But on another hand, there are lots of little things about him just because he lived in a different time that you can see those same groups wanting to you know, cancel him for a different reason. And what really got me was just how, you know, he was, I guess, heterodox in a way, like he marched to his own drummer. But to me, that didn't make him unique and different from all of us. That actually made him like all of us. I think today, especially with social media, you know, these algorithms are all trying to put us all into very specific columns and define people and make them parts of monoliths. And with Freakin, you see that you can have beliefs that, you know, might be from this column and might be from that column. And, you know, it's a little more a la carte than that. And I think a lot of us feel that way. I think a lot of us feel like we're trying to be pigeonholed maybe by some other group oh, because you voted this way or that way or whatever. And so that's one of the things I really liked about Freakin was just how, you know, that's, that's what really made me relate to him in a lot of ways is you can't really put this guy in a column. And you saw him as a human and you see him as a flawed human. I mean, he makes mistakes and he says stuff that, you know, today I think a lot of people disagree with, but he also says a lot of things a lot of people would agree with. And that's how we all are. And so it reminded me to, you know, maybe be a little less judgmental. You know, there's a lot of judgment flying around, especially, especially in digital culture today. And especially, you know, be careful of how I and, you know, we judge the past. I think there's a tendency sometimes to see it all as, you know, very gloomy and everyone was bad, you know, in a lot of different ways. And you realize, no, they did a lot of things that helped us reach the place we're at today. 
there was a lot of progress in some of those uglier parts of history too. And it's important to recognize that. So that's the big, one of the big takeaways I took from writing the book. Is there a message in his life that when it's all said and done, did you take away a message? There was, I felt like it was a very uplifting chat. What, what did it mean to you? What did it feel like for you? One of the big messages I took away was, so as I'm writing about him, a lot of my writing happened during the worst lockdowns of the pandemic, you know, when everyone stuck away at home, we're all in these bubbles, and a lot of people were going out, I think online more, and they're living a lot more of their lives digitally. And I was reminded, you know, Freakin was in an analog age. So he physically got out, that's how he got out of his bubble, it was physically, and he was meeting people. And he was very present, and he was focused on what was exactly in front of his face and the people that were in his immediate vicinity. And so the big takeaway I took was, you know, it's important to get out of our bubble, you know, go meet these people that we think are very, very different than us. And we will probably discover how in a lot of ways, they're often more similar than we might think, you know, and he did that because he was forced to by his environment. Um, and we are now, I think, often trapped in these digital environments that are warping our perspective a little bit and disfiguring our sense of proportionality about a lot of issues. So it's important to break out of that bubble and just get out there and see what's really going on, but to actually get out there. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.